Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi, I'm Lauren Dempster. Welcome to LawPod. I am a lecturer at the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast and today I am joined by Professor Kieran McAvoy. Kieran, can you introduce yourself please? I am Professor Kieran McAvoy. I'm a professor of law and transitional justice, um, and so I work uh, part time in the School of Law and part time in the Mitchell Institute, which is an interdisciplinary um, centre here at Queen's, focused on conflict and conflict transformation. Great, thank you, Kieran. So the focus of today's episode is ex-combatants. So can we kick off? Perhaps could you tell us what is an ex-combatant? Well, ex-combatants, in transitional justice, when we talk about ex-combatants, normally what we're talking about are non-state actors who have been involved in armed conflict. Obviously, state actors, so members of the military, um, the police, um, intelligence services, may also have been involved in armed actions. But normally, the language of ex-combatants refers to the non-state actors. Interestingly enough, it's been quite a controversial term here in, in the Northern Ireland context, and so one would, in, in technical terms, those of us who work in the field of transitional justice would ref- tend to refer to, for example, former Republican and loyalist activists as ex-combatants. But for other members of the community, well, they should be just referred to as terrorists. So obviously that speaks to the bigger definitional wrangles. Um, but anyway, for, for a transitional justice person, an ex-combatant refers to a former non-state actor who's been involved in armed conflict. Thanks, Kieran. So often ex-combatants are viewed as a significant spoiler during transitions from conflict. Can you tell us why that's the case? I think there's a number of elements to that. I mean, first of all, on a practical basis, if people have been involved in armed conflict over many years, as often people are, and they have picked up technical military skills along the way, they have access to arms. It is a significant managerial challenge when you are trying to promote a peace process. So thinking about how you're going to manage, often you could have groups of thousands and thousands of people who've been involved in armed struggle. They may well have been involved in violent actions and indeed be traumatized as a result of the the actions they've been involved in. Often ex-combatants have themselves been on the receiving end of violence. I've interviewed ex-combatants in, in 10 or 12 countries, and almost all of them have, in addition to having inflicted violence, they have been on the receiving end of violence. They may have been tortured by by state actors or indeed other non-state actors, so therefore traumatized as a result. They may have lost certain you know, skills, employment skills, all of those kind of stuff if they've been taken into armed groups as children, as indeed happens in many jurisdictions. They may have lacking, may have been lacking in a basic education, and so one can see why they present a significant managerial challenge for states or for international organisations like the United Nations, which are trying to promote a peace process. I've argued, however, that just just seeing them solely as a managerial challenge, or indeed, as you put it, as spoilers fails to capture the capacity of ex-combatants 
to be agents in a peace process and to be actually agents for good. And maybe we can chat a bit more about that. But I suppose from a managerial point of view, of course, they're seen as potential spoilers because they have experience of violence, because they have they have technical skills at violence. And therefore, if they are not sufficiently managed, there is always a risk that people may revert to violence and that that's obviously a challenge in any context. So that's why they're seen as spoilers in, in many places. It's largely a managerial perspective. Thanks, Kieran. And yeah, as you say, we'll come back to that point on on the capacity of ex-combatants to contribute positively to transition a little bit later. To bring the focus for now to the Northern Ireland context, obviously, for any of our listeners who are not aware, we had a, a peace agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, back in 1998. So we're over 20 years on from that now, and yet we still have active paramilitary organisations here. Could you please tell us why you think we, we still have those organisations over two decades after the conflict came to an end? Well, it's a great question. <laughs> it's a question that a lot of us ask. <laughs> I think a lot of us ask it on a regular basis. I, I, there's a number of elements to it. So first of all, for organizations that were committed to the peace process, so a part of our peace agreement, as, as you know, involved prisoners being released early. So all, all prisoners belonging to factions that were supporting the peace process had their prisoners released within two years of the Good Friday Agreement. And so that meant that there were paramilitary organisations who were adjudged by the British and Irish governments as supporting the peace process. And actually, they established a mechanism, um, the International Monitoring Commission, to verify whether or not organisations were, in, in fact, abiding by the, the ceasefires. So those organisations, and in, in this context, I'm thinking of the Provisional IRA, the Ulster Volunteer Force, the Ulster Defence Association, two big loyalist organisations, and then there were smaller groupings, the Irish National Liberation Army, the INLA, and the LVF, the Loyalist Volunteer Force. So for the bigger groups, let's focus on the Provisional IRA. So the Provisional IRA formerly continued to exist actually after the um, agreement and formally went out of business um, when um, Sinn Féin, its political wing, went onto the policing board and accepting the accepted the policing structures. So a prominent ex-combatant called Sheena Walsh, long, long-serving IRA prisoner, made an announcement in effect that they were going out of business. So during that period, the IRA, original IRA, in effect became a change management structure. It was transforming itself from a, a military organization into an organization um, focused exclusively on political means, people moving towards Sinn Féin, galvanizing support for Sinn Féin. Ex-prisoner groups were also heavily involved in this process. But it's a change management organization at that. And part of it's, it's it continues to exist, if you like, because that process of management requires a leadership. It requires a structure. And so if the key issue on that with regard to that organization is what what are its intentions, what were its intentions, are its intentions supporting the peace process? Now, there are a lot of bumps along the road with that organization. For example, it is clear that the organization was still involved in a number of acts of violence um, against dissident Republicans, people opposed to the peace process, not against the state or not against loyalism, but against dissident republicanism, still involved in acts of violence during that, that period of transition. So, and I think sometimes I've seen some journalists refer to this as, in Republican parlance, housekeeping, i.e. keeping their own house in order, keeping their own constituency in order. And so, at some level, some of those acts of violence were framed by mainstream. I mean, they didn't admit that it was the IRA involved, but 
as um, supportive of the peace process. Violence that is supportive of the peace process in that it is trying to keep a check on dissident Republican violence. There's, there's also been allegations that the IRA has responded to threats or indeed attacks against its own senior members. Um, so people, so there was a, a prominent murder of a former a senior IRA figure here in Belfast, and the person who allegedly was responsible for that was himself killed. There were strong suggestions that the IRA was involved in that process. So you've got you've got an organisation there involved in managing its own transition, supporting the peace process and supporting that transformation, but involved in acts of violence which are either inverted commas supporting the peace process or i.e. dealing with dissidents or supporting its own members from attack. So that organization has broadly left the stage. I suspect that there are still maybe elements of the structure intact, but it has left the stage to all intents and purposes. Other organizations, as you suggest in your question, are still around. So the Ulster Volunteer Force and the UDA are are still around. And, And the question does then become, well, why are they still around? This is a challenging issue, I think. For people like myself, who have worked quite a lot with Republican and loyalist ex-combatants over the years. I think broadly, we would have been supportive of structures remaining in place in order to deal with that transition from conflict to to non-conflict. Because there's always a risk that if you don't have a structure in place, that actually alternative anti-peace process organizations, which there are on the Republican side, and elements of the bigger loyalist paramilitary organizations, arguably on the other side as well, they'll hoover up members. So if you have an organizational structure and that organization is itself moving in the right direction in terms of the peace process, then there's an argument that keep the structures in place in order to manage the transition. That would have been the argument with the IRA. That certainly would have been the argument with the UVF and the UDA over the the last probably 10 to 15 years. I guess at some stage, however, in the transition, you have to ask yourself, what is the utility? When has the utility of retaining those structures run out? And at what stage, and this is a significant issue on the loyalist side within elements of the UVF and elements of the UDA, where they have been, they're heavily involved in criminal activity. And so for the structure has morphed into a flag of convenience for elements within those organizations. These organizations are not monoliths. You will have geographical differences across different organizations. But with the loyalist flag is a flag of convenience for people to be involved in criminality and drug dealing. So that is a question as to when that it simply becomes a criminal issue to be policed, to be honest. And when that happens, then that's a very difficult issue. And then the other organized, sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but it's a hard question. And then the other issue are paramilitary structures, which are anti-peace process structures. So dissident Republicans continue to act because they, they are um, opposed to the peace process. And so they have continued to carry out sporadic attacks on security force personnel, on members of the prison service, and also on internal feuding within themselves. Um, so so that's, it's a complex picture. And I suppose our, our transition, the Northern Ireland transition, and the fact that we still have these organisations 20-odd years on, just shows you how complicated a business it is to shift armed organizations away from from violence when they've been around for 30 years towards non-violence. It's a very complicated business. Thanks, Kieran. So as you have explained there, we have this quite complex picture in terms of paramilitary organizations in Northern Ireland and, and how they have sort of morphed over time. So one of the things you touched on earlier is that there is capacity for ex-combatants to transform cultures of violence. Could you tell us a little bit more about the role of ex-combatants there? 
And also, are there particular aspects of their past lives as being involved in violent activism that might equip them for the task of peacemaking, including perhaps particularly in the communities in which they have harmed? Yes, I mean, obviously, one can't generalise, and the experiences of ex-combatants in one society might be different than another, and we can probably come back to that. But I can talk directly about the experiences here in in Northern Ireland of of the positive work of ex-combatants in, in doing precisely that. So, when the uh, Loyalist and Republican ceasefires were called in 1994, they were cessations of military operations, not of policing activities, as they referred to them. And what that meant was that in both of those communities, both Loyalist and Republican organisations were involved in punishment violence against alleged antisocial offenders in either community. And those actions continued. And so projects emerged on either side of the community, led and staffed by ex-combatants, which were trying to challenge cultures of violence. These projects were established originally as alternatives to punishment violence. They were based on the principles of restorative justice, which is non-violence, human rights compliant, resolution of disputes through restoring restorative justice, restoring relationships, and being based in local communities. So whereas previously people would have gone to the IRA or the UVF, which is the loyalist organization that's involved in this, and sought vigilante justice from the paramilitary organizations. Instead, these projects would be involved in mediation and dispute resolution, nonviolent. But the reason that these projects had credibility within the community was precisely because they were staffed and led by ex-combatants. And these were people who were seen in their own communities having fought on behalf of that community. And therefore, if they're the people who are saying violence is no longer the answer, they have so much more credibility in challenging cultures of violence than if you have someone like me or my colleagues who are you know, middle-class academics or community activists who are saying violence is not the way forward. Well, we have walk the walk, but people who have been involved in, in armed organizations over a long period of time who've served often lengthy prison sentences on behalf of the cause and community from which they come, they have much more credibility in terms of establishing these projects in the community which are are designed to prevent violence. The other interesting thing that they brought to the table in this process was that is particularly relevant in the Republican community, that where you've had you know, 30-year conflict and a history of estrangement between working-class Republican communities and the police. So a deal is done in 2005-06 whereby the, the, the leaders, leadership of the Republican movement support policing. But that, just because you've signed a piece of paper, doesn't deliver that deal on the ground. And so the police themselves would have recognised that they lacked the the practical bridges into those communities because they just didn't have the relationship. And so bridges needed to be provided between the community and the police. And these ex-combatant-led restorative projects provided that bridge. They're the ones who are leading their communities, grassroots leadership, leading their communities to say, okay, the conflict is over. We need a police service that is accountable to the community. And we need to build relationships with the police and we will, in effect, hold your hand, they're saying to the community, in the re-establishment of, of that relationship. Now, because of the background to the to, to ex, these ex-combatants, this is, this is a more equal, inverted commas, power relationship than often one finds between police and community. Because what's happening here is that it's not simply that they're going to you know, give people tea and biscuits. They're going to be demanding. They're going to say, well, we need our community policed properly. You are not doing this properly. We have a problem with drugs in our area and so on and so forth. So it's a testing relationship for the police engaging with these ex-combatant communities. But in fairness to the PSNI, uh, to the to local police here in Northern Ireland, I think they have been at the forefront of suggesting that these projects led and staffed by ex-combatants have been central 
they're central to the re-establishment of those relationships. They're very, very important for the police themselves. That's just one example from the local context. I've seen examples in other places in South Africa, for example, where, again, you have ex-combatant-led community-based restorative justice programs one's starting to see it now as well in Colombia we've got former FARC members involved in similar reconciliation peacemaking work I think it comes from the fact that number one people who have made that genuine commitment to a peace process and so they carry the credibility of having been involved in previous violence but often actually as well they carry a certain set of skills in terms of you know knowing how to organize things how to engage in negotiations the leadership of the community restorative justice projects here will be very upfront that the skills that they learned in negotiations for example with the police and other statutory stakeholders they learned them in prison and um, because they were having similar negotiations while they were in jail so this accepting that actually ex-combatants can be agents of conflict transformation, that they bring certain skills to the table, that they bring credibility often within communities, obviously depending on the nature of the relationship between the ex-combatant group and that community from which they come. They bring a lot to the table, so they're not just spoilers. They actually have a significant amount to contribute to the peacemaking process. Great. Thank you, Kieran. Could you tell us a bit now about the particular challenges faced by female ex-combatants and how a more rounded understanding of gender, including perhaps the notion of militarised masculinity, can help in the transition from conflict? I think there's significant research to suggest that female ex-combatants face a range of issues in terms of in a post-conflict context. First of all, often uh, female ex-combatants themselves may have been traumatised, they may have been the victims of sexual violence themselves within armed organisations, significant issue in, in parts of Africa and Latin America, uh, former members of FARC and so forth. So they are both victims and perpetrators. And often during the conflict, those issues, the trauma that they've experienced and may have inflicted actually, hasn't been dealt with. So they will have a particular set of issues in, in terms of trauma through being, both inflicting and being on the receiving end of, of violence, including um, sexual violence. That's one issue. Secondly, how female ex-combatants are received into communities can depend significantly on local cultural mores and values. So there may be particular opprobrium, for example, directed at women who've been involved in violence, whereas male ex-combatants may, that violence may be more acceptable in certain communities and um, when it's come from men, but women having been involved in violence can lead to, you know, a, a greater social stigma in terms of once you move out of an ordinary organisation back into community and civilian life. There's a third issue, I think, for female ex-combatants is that if you have been in an armed organisation and you've uh, achieved a degree of leadership within that organisation or status based on your military prowess or your capacity as a leader, when returning to civilian life for female ex-combatants where those opportunities to have that that level of agency even or that level of responsibility and that level of respect in certain communities may be quite difficult so you know if you've been involved for example as a you know middle or upper manager within the FARC structures for 10 years and then you come back and actually socioeconomically it's very difficult to get you a job like just for, for a woman who's been through that experience and, and had that kind of experience coming back into ordinary civilian life being seen to accept very traditional gender roles may be quite a significant challenge um, for female ex-combatants. So there's a whole discussion now within the people who work on ex-combatant issues about uh, coming up with bespoke programs that deal with all of these issues that are faced by women coming back into conflict. Then the broader question about about gender, and in particular this focuses on notions of militarised masculinity, that's really about accepting that 
the versions of masculinity that is promoted and valued during a conflict may be quite destructive when a person moves back into civilian life. So where violence is privileged and prowess at violence is privileged above all else in certain contexts, then managing that out the other side into civilian life can be significantly challenging. And this is not just for ex-combatants, it's also for state actors who've been involved in violence. So people who've been involved in, so uh, men who have been involved in violence, coming to terms with what they have been involved in over a number of years, and then dealing with ordinary civilian life, dealing with family relationships, Dealing with all of that, there's significant issues around alcohol and drug abuse for ex-combatants, both state and non-state actors who've been involved in violence. And all of that, kind of engaging, taking people through that process of recognising what happens to one's sense of what it means to be a man during a conflict, and then the consequences of that when you move into civilian life, and how not to carry that stuff with you particularly the toxic elements of that around masculinity and patriarchy and so forth, how you're going to manage your relationship with your partner or your family or whatever, how you're going to manage in the workplace if you're lucky enough to get um, a job afterwards, how you deal with that militarized masculinity and how you kind of deprogram some of the toxic elements of that is a significant challenge in this field. Thanks, Kieran. And of course, a key issue there, as you'll be aware, is domestic violence and how in the Northern Irish context, how domestic violence manifests itself is still strongly shaped by our, our history of conflict. So Kieran, you've worked with ex-combatants in a lot of post-conflict contexts and a few of those you've already touched on today. How transferable are the experiences of ex-combatants from different transitional societies to others which might have very different social and political contexts? I, I think one always has to be very cautious about any kind of mechanistic transposition of the experiences of one jurisdiction to another. And certainly if I'm doing any comparative work, that's always the first thing that I'll say if, if, if I'm um, engaging with ex-combatants or civil society organisations is be really careful of the person who arrives from overseas who's wearing a suit and tells you about their experiences and how much you should transfer from one context to the other. So with a significant degree of caution, I think, is, is the answer. That said, I think the way in which comparative work can be done well is by trying to thematize and abstract your own experiences in in ways that make sense to an overseas audience and let them decide what is or is not relevant about your own experiences. So you may, the conversation we've just been having about militarized masculinity, for example, or domestic violence from state actors and non-state actors. So you can say, well, this has been our experience in the Northern Irish conflict. I don't know if that's relevant or not for yours. And what you often find if you present information and experiences like that in a certain, in a in a more humble way, I suppose, then people will pick up on it immediately. Whereas if you go in to those kind of contexts and say, oh, well, this is our experiences of, of how we managed ex-combatants. And you know, if you're in, in any way bombastic or imperialistic about that experience, um, you'll get people's backs up. So I think you can draw out themes and experiences very tentatively from one context to another, but it must be done in a way that almost lets your local interlocutors draw it out for themselves. You you can kind of very gently put it out there and then let them kind of draw upon that experiences and see what is or is not relevant. Like that's the right way to do um, comparative work on ex-combatants or indeed on any kind of uh, comparative work on transition process. Thanks, Kieran. I have one final question. If we think about the Northern Ireland experience, sort of thinking back to the establishment of, of the Northern Ireland Assembly, like some of the sort of most memorable images of that time related to like the DUP's opposition to entering government with Sinn Féin. So you talked a lot earlier about 
how ex-combatants garner credibility at a community level. Can you say a bit perhaps about how those who have been formally involved in violence or linked to organisations that were involved in, in violence can garner legitimacy at that sort of elite political level? Yeah, I think that the Northern Ireland example is a very good one on that one. I mean, the obvious example for here is the relationship that was formed between Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley when when they were Deputy First and First Minister. And so McGuinness was a former senior member of the IRA, and everyone knew that, and Dr Paisley knew that as well. And Dr Paisley himself was a former political prisoner as well, in that he had been imprisoned um, at the early period of the conflict um, for leading anti-civil rights protests. And they got on because, in part, neither of them were in denial about their respective history. I think they also got on because they respected each other's commitment to transform this place. I think that both Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, their commitment to this place and their commitment to a different way was manifest. And so I think the credibility, I mean, McGuinness had been a pretty fierce military leader within the IRA structures. He was very highly regarded by, if you read the biographical accounts, for example, of British officers, uh, British army uh, personnel who served here during the conflict. He was seen as a formidable foe. I mean, he was seen as a guerrilla army leader. And those skills applied to um, the peace process were formidable. I actually think we miss him. I think that his his particular set of skills, where he took all of that capacity and that intellect for managing an armed organization into and applied it to a, a peace process, I think that was a huge plus for us. And I, I find generally, actually, for, both, for dealing with both Republicans and loyalists and indeed former state actors who've been involved in violence, I... I find them much easier to engage with than politicians who have not lived through that experience and the the reality of both inflicting and often experiencing violence. I think politicians who haven't been through that experience can play a bit fast and loose with the peace process, whereas those who've walked the walk in terms of being involved either as a police officer or or a member of the army or indeed a paramilitary organisation who are now committed to the peace process, they they are much more guarded in terms of of managing that process and I suppose one can see it even now with the current generation of Tory leaders and how fast and loose Boris Johnson and, and his cabinet can play with this peace process whereas the people who one can still have very sensible conversations with include former members of British Army, former police officers or former paramilitaries, they get it. And they get how precious and how hard won the peace process was. So I think there is a significant value added um, to those who have um, been involved directly in violence, either on behalf of the state or non-state actors. Thank you, Kieran. This is obviously a very complex issue and there is a lot more that we could say on it, but I'm conscious of time. So I guess we need to, to pull it to a close. But thank you so much for your time. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Thanks to Professor Kieran McAvoy. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I am Lauren Dempster, and this was LawPod.